0: This podcast is brought to you by Ensign Films. Film, television and radio production made in Manchester. Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Minisports, specialising in in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Bit of a different one this week. Uh, This is a guy who I've never met. We've only ever corresponded via the World Wide Web, but... We became friends on social media because, bit embarrassing this one, he tells me that the reason he got into motorbikes was watching me on Top Gear back in the 90s. It's called Sanjay Tripathi. He's the Associate Vice President of Hero Motor Company Limited. He works in and has always worked in the biggest motorcycle market in the world, India, where they shift. Are you ready for this? 15 million bikes a year. This conversation's really about that. It's about India and motorcycling there, how different it is to everywhere else. What I found out was how massively influenced by the British motorcycle scene, the Indian motorcycle scene is. Sanjay launched the R1 Yamaha in India, the first super bike. He was one of the people who developed the amazing 650 Uh, V-Twin that Royal Enfield are having so much success with. And he's a great guy, Uh, my guest this week on Speed Shop. All the way from Mumbai, Sanjay Tripathi. Sanjay, I'm fascinated about the the motorcycle um, scene in India. Tell me about it. What's it like?
1: Okay, Steve, you know, see, motorcycles started coming to India in the 1920s, just after the first world war. Most of them were British motorcycles. Some Harley's did come, but most of them were British motorcycles. They were used in India by the army, by the railways, British railways that time, by the postal service as a dispatch rider used to do. Use them so mostly UCPs, Norton's, Royal Enfield, AJS, Matchless. They came in India in hoods, You know they were coming to India till the 1960s. Until uh, you know, India started manufacturing their own motorcycles, and of course so now made in India motorcycles are going back to UK. So it's a great culture. It's a very old culture, nearly a hundred year old culture. And the motorcycles in India are kind of a lifeline, you know, for India. You know, uh, you know, close to uh, 1.2 million motorcycles are sold every month. So every- you can imagine on. 1. Every, Every month, 15 million a year. Wow. 15 million a year. So, just to set a context, Royal Enfield, which is a British brand, sells approximately 70,000 units per month.
0: Wow. When it well, was, you, can you I can imagine the scale? I do want yes. to talk about, about the scale of, of the market, but I wonder if there was an equivalent of the Maharaja's Rolls Royce. You know, if you watch the car, the collector car auction market, every so often interesting cars will come along. British cars, always British cars, mm-hmm. Bentley's, Rolls Royce, Lagonda, yes. Ga- La cars like that. And it'll say, formerly the property of a Maharaja, we have for, for sale. Was there a, a motorcycle equivalent? Did those very rich men buy Bruce Superiors and Zeniths and Nortons and bikes like that? Or was, was a motorcycle considered to be uh, declassé? Was it, was it considered to be sort of not the done thing for, for royalty?
1: No, actually, Steve, motorcycles did come. So we had Vincent's in India. Vincent, wow. Yes, Vincent, Black Shadow. So you, the Nawabs, the Maharajas, you know, they used to have horses. Of course. Motorcycles started coming. So it became a mechanical horse for them. So it was like a plaything for them. So you had the Vincent and the Brough superiors coming to India. And some of the Harley Davidson did also come. So sometimes in the auctions in India also, these Maharaja motorcycles are sold, and many of them have gone back to UK
0: now. Do You, you must, you must like all young men, well maybe not as young as we were Sanjay, but uh, like all young men who love motorcycles, you must occasionally dream of somebody saying to you, oh, I know this old guy, and he has this motorcycle, and, and he, he's had it for 70 years, and he wants to sell it, and and finding somewhere in a dusty garage or workshop or shed a Vincent or a Brough Superior or, a, you know, something equally exotic. Have you ever have you ever found one like that?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, you know, uh, Steve, what used to happen, this I'm telling you a story about seven, eight years ago, I had some British friends. So a lot of these bikes from India have gone back to U.K., so the kind of a barn finds. There used to be barn finds. Yeah, you know, somewhere around the way, some rough superior or old Norton side valve. Generally, a lot of side valve Nortons came to India mm. is lying around, and they were taken away in like you know pittance. You know, very less money. Of course, they were not running in a very bad shape. Some papers were there, and they were restored back in UK, and these were. These are there, but some of the Maharajas and their descendants are still holding on to their old motorcycles. They are still British motorcycles, some Harleys are there, they are still holding on. So you have some classic restorers in and around Delhi. Delhi is a huge uh, British bike market in and around Delhi, which restore motorcycles. So there are motorcycles, classic and vintage shows in India, Delhi, Jaipur and some in Mumbai, uh, Bombay earlier, now Mumbai. So these shows are held, and these
0: are kind of cherished dreams or cherished heirlooms of those families. Sanjay, I've I've seen footage and read lots of articles, as I'm sure everyone who, who reads motorcycle magazines, which will be a big percentage of the people who listen to this show, of uh, workshops in India where craftsmen are still uh, able to reproduce the old skills. When it comes to metalworking, working working with the English wheel, um, working with lades, um, and and techniques like pinstriping and the hand painting of metal parts on a motorcycle... Um, is it really like that? Is it easy to find a man who can pinstripe the tank of a nineteen sixties Triumph or who can who can create a perfect mudguard for a, a Coventry Eagle out of a piece of car bonnet or is is it really like that or is that is that a bit of a myth that's been kind of built up by the Western media?
1: No, it is still there, Steve. You know, I'll give an example. Even today, one of the models of Royal Enfield made by the factory. The pinstripe is done by hand. Yes. And I have restored my uh, 1997 Royal Enfield. The pinstripe is done by locally out here in Delhi. So you have still metal workers and large number of these petrol tank of old BSAs, Norton and Triumphs, which you find being sold in UK, are exported from India.
0: Yeah, of they course. They
1: are handmade To their specifications and exported back to UK. A lot of, you know, these pea shooter silencers are exported from India, all handmade.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to your and talk about your career on motorcycles. Where did it it all start for you?
1: Okay, it started in school, you know, from a very young age, when I was like three, four years of age, I had this tricycle which was given to me by one of my uncles. And during school days, I started to learn how to ride a motorcycle. Initially, it was a Yazdi, which was an offshoot of Java. And later on, uh, I kind of learned on my uncle's Royal Enfield, which was a 1967 British-made Royal Enfield, which uh, was there in India. I started learning on that. So that's how it started. But the real, you know, boom came or The real romance started When I started seeing seeing your shows on the top here (laughs) in India, it was, you know, I used to love your accent. It was not a typical English accent. It's not a typical English accent. accent. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? It was a very northern accent. And the way you used to speak, I used to just love it because, you know, there were Jeremy Clarkson and other guys. They had this typical, very polished, polished London accent. Of course, we are used to that in India. But you had a very biker accent. So it started from there. The love and the romance of motorcycles started from there. And then I completed my.
0: <laughs> it must have. Something great. It must have looked odd to you to see me generally in um, an environment where the skies were the same color as a dirty puddle. And it was. I was thinking <laughs> on, only yesterday we were talking about. Um, we do talk about Top Gear. Listen, it's got to the point where a friend of mine has got me in his phone as Steve, I don't like to talk about Top Gear, Barry. <laughs> But I've given in. I've given in. I will, I'm will. i going to talk about it because it was 11 years of my life and lots of interesting stuff. I think interesting stuff happened to do with cars and bikes. This program's about cars and bikes, so I'm damn well going to talk about what we did in the Top Gear years. But we were talking about a piece that I did about um, the new Triumph. The uh, It was a very successful bike for Triumph and the rebirth of Triumph. It was the Daytona, the T595. Which is yeah, the triple yeah. with a single-sided swinging arm. Um, I think Seymour Powell design had some input into it. And what they did is they made it look a bit more grown up. A lot of you'll remember back back in the day, most sports bikes were kind of fifteen different colours. It was like the Japanese motorcycle industry was competing to put the most number of the most clashing colours on one motorcycle at the same time. It got a bit silly, and Triumph just said, "It's black, it's red, it's yellow." That's what you get. It's, it's a great-looking bike. It flows from back to front, front to back, looks good from any angle. And it doesn't go quite as well as a Honda Fireblade, but it's a kind of a bit more of a relaxed ride. And this friend of mine was saying, I'll never forget you infusing wildly about this new Triumph. And he said, behind you, I could see lightning. I could see, I said, yeah, it was pouring with rain. It was pouring with <laughs> rain. And we were, I was there at the side of a road somewhere near Hinkley, well, the Triumph Factory uh, was yes. was and is. Mm, yeah, let's not talk about that. Um, and, you know, it was my job to be enthusiastic. I'll just quickly tell you, one of the first people to tell me that, and I'm sure you'll know the name, um, because I bet you had him in India the same way we did in the UK. It was Murray Walker. Murray Walker, ah, yes. yes, known as a yes. Formula One commentator. Was at heart yeah, a yeah. great a great motorcycle man. His father Graham Walker was a TT racer and champion, and his far he inherited his father's job as the commentator on the BBC. And in the very early days of my Top Gear tenure, I met Murray at a BBC Shinder. You must have been to a million of these, being a bit of a corporate man yourself, where you know everybody stands around with a drink, looking at each other and wondering who to talk to. Murray walked straight over to me. And he just addressed me as though he knew me. I'd never met him before. He said, Steve, (laughs) keep doing what you're doing. Don't listen to... He didn't didn't say the haters because, you know, nobody said the haters. This was the early 90s. He basically said, don't listen to the haters. He said, and remember, you are a cheerleader for motorcycling. Most people... Murray said this to me, and it was right. Most people, the the British public, terrified of motorbikes and motorcyclists who they think are, are criminals... He said, it's your job to put them straight on that and to be, as he said, a cheerleader. And I remembered that because people had said to me, what you want to do, Steve, is you want to get some bikes on and have a real go at them, like Jeremy Clarkson does with cars. And I said, I'm not going to do yeah. that. I'm not going to do that because the, the program is 85% car and maybe 90 and 10 or 15% bike. There isn't enough time for me to say oh look at this bike isn't it terrible I'm going to have some fun slagging it off so I always made sure that I picked bikes that I liked already and then whether it was a BMW GS or a Royal Enfield bullet or a Triumph and I would enthuse and be a cheerleader and say hey look at bikes aren't they great and ho- and, I, and it, it's one of the the best things about it about that job apart from the money of course was people like you and there have been quite a few yeah. in years to come saying, I started on bikes because of you. I got into bikes because I saw you, and it looked like fun. You looked like you were having a good time. And I thought, wow, motorbikes, yeah. And and I've had that from people like yourself who've gone on to do great things in the motorcycle industry and from racers and, and classic bike restorers and all sorts of people. And, and that is super rewarding that, that, you know, years later people say... I got into motorcycles which for me one of the greatest joys of my life because of you.
1: Yes, something that was so great, you know, listening to you, you are testing the bike, you're talking about the bike. It was a kind of a first time in the world. You started a culture with people followed you because maybe there was no one
0: else. There wasn't anybody so, else. Know, we, and then
1: India, the annoying yeah, thing the yeah. annoying,
0: the annoying thing for me is that nobody came after me. You know, no, nobody kind of kicked me off my perch. No, no young guy. I suppose, in a way, Guy Martin has, has done that to a degree, because guys become. Uh, are you familiar with Guy Martin, Sanjay? Is, is yes. Do you
1: yes. know the guy? He came to India and he did some show for Royal Enfield. I'm very familiar. He's a teaching racer and a great presenter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, a cheerleader for motorcycling. Although obviously he, he he does a lot more than that. But let's go back. Let's go back to when when you started out on a bike. How easy or difficult was it to to ride a motorcycle in India? Was it was it easier than it is in the UK? Could you just I don't know what sort of rules and regulations did you need to wear a crash helmet? Did you need to pass a test? Oh yeah, you need to pass a test
1: because you need to get a license after the age of eighteen. You get a learner's license, and after three months, you if you pass the test, the test is conducted by a, a transport authority. And if you pass the test, you get a license, permanent license, which is valid for 20 years from the age of 18. And then you have to renew it. So it is easy because we don't have rules, unlike UK, that first you have to have a 125cc bike, then a bigger bike, A2 yeah. license. For us, any license you can ride, any bike, so once I got my license, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so once I got my license, I started riding the Royal Entry, which was a great feeling, which was a big bike in India that time. Yeah, uh, It used to have the thump and still has the thump. And then I did my college and went ahead and did my uh, management. And my first own bike was a Yamaha RX 100. It
0: was a two-stroke and fantastic sound, you know. What a good bike. Customized, uh, yeah. The Good RX, bike. yeah, but it was it was a funny bike in the UK because as you pointed out, we had regulations that came in and when I started biking, it was, if you're a learner, it was so complicated and people have, people have said to me, you could have a 250, I'll just finish that sentence for a change instead of just going off at a tangent like I normally do, which is what I'm going to do now. The people have said to me, do they make it deliberately complicated in the UK to get a motorcycle licence? And my reply is, yes, of course they do. Why do you think they make it so complicated? Of course they do. They don't really want people. If you actually sit these people down, and I've spoken to government ministers, and I've spoken to the people that are involved in, in, in drafting legislation, and I've spoken to people in the road traffic research organisations. Motorcycles, powered two-wheelers to them, are a problem. It doesn't really fit with their plan. I, I don't know if India is the same. I'm sure you'll tell me. The UK isn't set up for motorcycles at all. Here in Manchester, the provision for motorcycle parking in the city centre is tiny. In the second largest city in the UK... I would estimate that here in the city centre, there's fewer than 150 parking spaces for motorcycles, and that's in a conurbation of 4.5 million people.
1: So India, I would say, it is much better. (laughs) I I would say India is much better. So, you know, if you ask me exactly where India is, what happened in the 1960s UK, it is happening in India now. Right. So you have a boom, you have a new generation coming up, You have economic boom happening. Uh, You know, young people are getting money. The society is changing. People are going out. People are buying motorcycles. Motorcycles becoming like a culture. So, like you used to have the mods and the rockers. Yeah. So we don't have so many mods here, but a lot of rockers are there. So illegal racing is going on. People are breaking rules. They're riding fast. New highways are coming up. You know, we don't have an Ace Cafe out here, but we do have cafes like Starbucks cafes on the highways or on the cities. So people are going there, they are dating, they're taking their girlfriends out. So, you know, what happened in the 60s is happening in India now. So I would say it's a great time to be in India, to be a motorcyclist. But, you know, uh, it is, rules are coming in because generally India follows UK. So we do have the Euro 5 now. Rules are coming in. So in the future, I'm afraid it will go the way UK is. Maybe next five years, seven years, I don't know as of today, but rules are becoming tight. You know, so the police is after these guys who are doing illegal racing. We do get super bikes and other big bikes, so they are able to dodge them. Accidents are happening. You know, so all these things, the rock and roll is happening, pubs are happening, you know, uh, these uh, bands are happening. So it's exactly the same. So, you know, I can quite see a correlation. So this is, I think, more of a cultural phenomenon, which is kind of encouraged by an economic boom.
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Sanjay, that that you you mentioned the 60s and and the Ace Cafe. Oh, by the way, uh, Mark and George, who own and run the Ace Cafe, are, are good friends of mine. I've been for a long time. Ace Cafe Mumbai, come on, guys. It needs to happen. You heard what Sanjay said there. It, you need to, you guys need to make it happen because the Ace is such a great destination in London for petrol heads of all persuasions, as we say, and it's a place for people to come together. And it has been for uh, quite a long time now, and more, more power to it. But coming back to what you said, what of course happened in the UK in the sixties is that the Mini happened. So effectively, a small car, a small, affordable ish. If we're honest, the mini wasn't that affordable, let's let's be honest. Not not most people couldn't afford one, most people didn't have a car. But a new breed of car builders, uh car owners, was born in the UK in the sixties. And is that what's going to happen in India? Are all those guys who were now, as you say, racing around on these new roads in the same way that guys were trying to do the ton on the north circular road in London? in the late 50s and early 60s are those guys going to be switching to a car as soon as they can as soon as there's an affordable car that most indian people can can access
1: yes steve i already see that happening uh, because as the economic development is happening people are getting more money so they may keep a bike but they are switching to these smaller suzuki cars we don't have a meaning So you have these Suzuki smaller cars. Yeah. So they are switching to that and it is happening. So unfortunately, and also another problem, now tubes are coming in India, in the bigger cities. So the people who, many of them who used to ride motorcycles are shifting to the public transport slowly. They're shifting to the cars. So I would still say the bigger bike scene, you know, the, the 500cc and above, it will still remain, the culture will be there. But that mass biking may in future shift towards four wheelers and
0: cars. Well, that's a sign of a newly emergent middle class, isn't it? People have said to me, there was somebody the other day said something about Harley-Davidson was unaffordable. And I said Harley-Davidson was always unaffordable to the working man. The Harley-Davidson wasn't a motorcycle for the working man. If you bought a a Panhead back in the day, a a Hydra Glide or then a Duo Glide, if you bought an original Electro Glide, you were more than likely a professional person. You were a doctor, you were a banker, you were a businessman, you were a member of the country club. You weren't a blue collar working guy. That bike was way too expensive for you. Way out of your way out of your line. What you probably would have bought if you were a, a blue collar working guy in America in the nineteen fifties was a BSA or a Triumph or, or a Norton. One of those imported affordable great-looking British bikes that we managed to sell to the Americans literally by the shipload, not a Harley. A Harley was a bike for the solidly middle class. The guy that rode a Harley probably drove a Lincoln or a Cadillac, not a Chevy. Yes,
1: absolutely. See, Harley is very expensive in India too. So generally a Harley rider owns uh, some kind of a middle-level car, or he... He is a professional or an executive or a businessman even. So, Harley is very expensive. The only, you know, enthusiast bike which is affordable in India is the Royal Enfield. Of course, it's made in India, so it is affordable, it is much cheaper. And also because Royal Enfield is being produced in India since 1955. So, you have a huge number of bike units in the pre-owned market. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, so you have these what we call the local garage mechanic or the garagist culture what we call in india this this garages culture they buy this pre owned royal enfield and go to these garages and get it repaired or get it you know customized to their liking so that's how uh, you know people are buying these royal enfield they are very popular and it is kind of fueling up this biking culture in india
0: so do things get thrown away or is it still is it still a culture that recycles everything
1: I think a lot of it is recycled. The Japanese are buy and throw away because most of them are plastic parts. But Royal Enfield, thankfully, is still all metal and iron. So even, you know, a little bit of some issue or if it meets with an accident, it can easily be repaired and it can be on the road. Uh, Royal Enfield and British bikes are good. We still have some old BSA bikes and some very interesting story. See, Royal Enfield has gone back to UK but is actually owned by an Indian company. Norton today is in UK, is owned by an Indian company. Yes. BSA
0: soon will be in UK, is owned by an Indian company. So, you know, this love. Hey, Sanjay, yeah, the, boot, this... the, the, Sanjay the boot's on the other foot now, pal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, yeah. So, so I, I would say, you know, Steve, the love affair with the British motorcycle continues in India. And one great thing is there because the economy is doing so well and these big Indian companies are owning these bikes. I did some research and I found out all the the big bosses of these companies have either studied in UK or they have studied in British school either in India. And their love affair with the British bike is very strong. So yeah, yes, but,
0: instead of going into Chinese hands, it is an Indian hand. I hope so. I was going to say, what what is isn't what is available in India? What, what are the majority of, of names that you'd see on the side? Like you say, 15 million bikes sold every year, the biggest, surely, the biggest motorcycle market in the world. What brands would I see on the sides of these bikes? So, and w- which ones would I know and which ones wouldn't I know?
1: So, you know, uh, Steve, you will know Honda, you will know Yamaha. There is an Indian band by the name of Bajaj, Hero. These are smaller bikes, you know, 100cc, 125cc, 150cc. So they are a kind of a commuter motorcycles in India, but you will see lots of Royal Enfields in India, lots of them. You have, you will see a lot of Jawas now, older YSDS. Uh, you will see some Harley-Davidson's. You will have on Sundays where this uh, so-called rocker cultures is taking off. You have started to see, you know, now BMWs, Triumphs, uh, Ducatis are coming in. So all the international brands are there. Some typical Indian brands are there, which are available in throughout the world, like Bajaj, Hero are there, which you will see in hordes in India. Uh, but yes, the international brands are there and they are making their presence very well in India.
0: Does the Indian government protect the Indian market? Because presumably that such a giant market is very attractive to manufacturers from abroad, particularly I'm thinking from Japan and from China. So is is there a protection of that market in India?
1: Yes, so there are duty structures, so you have to manufacture the bike in
0: India. Right. you, if have you want to, make to kind it of
1: import it, there is hundred percent duty. And one good thing in India is that that there are no Chinese motorcycles. Uh, Indian <laughs> or Indian people don't like Chinese motorcycles. We like British motorcycles. We yes, Japanese motorcycles. We, uh, we like Harley's. We like Ducatis. But love affair with British motorcycles is there. So no Chinese. Sanjay, i for
0: that. It's really yeah. I, I, I'm all for that as well. I think China for all kinds of reasons. I, I don't want to come across as anti-Chinese, but I think. China does not play the game that everybody else plays. It plays by a different set of rules and that makes it that makes it completely unfair and, un, un, and uncompetitive for manufacturers from other countries to try and either A, sell their motorcycles in China or B, stop Chinese motorcycles from coming into their market. So until they play by the rules, I'm all for the way that you guys do. Do it in India. It's hard for me to talk. I'm sorry, I've not, I've always imagined travelling to India. At some point, I will. Um, you know, you live in a city like Manchester, and you are surrounded by reminders of empire. You know, this is the original industrial city, as I'm sure you know. We had the first railway station. Uh, this is where... Industry began on these streets that I walk every day, and you constantly, constantly see reminders of days of empire. Streets that are named after cities in India, you know, all all kinds of provinces of India. The profusion, as I'm sure you're only too well aware, of Indian restaurants all over the UK. Yes. You can't, you can't get away from the the India's influence on the UK, but. It's hard for me to imagine what it's like there. You're talking about sports bikes and Ducatis and stuff like that, and I'm thinking, well, I'm a great lover of Ducati, and my bikes have struggled with British roads. What are Indian roads like? Is is it a mixture of the very good and the very bad? Yes, you know, uh,
1: Steve, you are correct. So it is a mixture. So in the cities, roads are pretty good. Some of the highways are now improving. Uh, Some of the major highways and uh, improving roads are pretty good. But generally, if you go to smaller cities or B roads, what we call in England, the B roads, they are pretty bad conditions. So Royal Inquiry is a success because it can take on those B roads. It can take on those bad roads in India. So still, the roads are pretty bad uh, in India. But cities, I would say some of the highways are improving. And as you say, the empire, you know, still so much of British influence is there. I can talk to you in the same language or the culture is very similar. Our judiciary system is very British. Our education system is very influenced by the British. Our bureaucracy, whether, <laughs> no, whether good or bad,
0: is plan, British. Yeah, for good or bad. <laughs> So let's let's go back to to your early days in biking, and and then you how do you transition from being a motorcyclist to working in the motorcycle industry? And was was that something that you always wanted to do, or or did it did it happen by accident?
1: So what happened? I completed my MBA, and of course I wanted to join a motorcycle company. And like in UK, these companies come to come and pick you up as gentlemen kind of yeah. you know, kind of a trainee or something. So, the parent company of Royal Enfield, Aisha Motors, it came and picked me up because they maybe saw my enthusiasm. So, it was way back in 97. So, I joined Royal Enfield in January in 97. So, that's how it started. And from Royal Enfield, then after working in Royal Enfield for five to six years, I joined Honda, Yamaha, Harley, and back to Royal Enfield again. And when I joined Royal Enfield for the second time sometime in 2012, it was that time that I launched the original GT535 at Ace Cafe at UK. You know, so there was this rockers and the mods, you know, a kind of a mock, mock fight we conducted at Brighton, Brighton Pier. <laughs> and we called all the media and it was great fun. <laughs> Did you get involved? A little bit. I was kind of managing it because I was managing the launch. Uh, So the the ride from Ace Cafe was flagged off by Mark, Mark Wilsmore. Yeah, of course. And I associated with Lewis Leathers and, you know, so many other brands, British like-minded brands, which were used by the bikers in the heydays of rockers movement in the 60s and even 70s, I would say. So it was a great fun. And I was involved in the development of the 650 twins also for the Royal Tree. So, uh,
0: Sanjay, uh, that is my blood. Sanjay. That is such a fantastic bike. You know, I've got to give you some credit if you were you were involved in that. I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan of what Triumph are doing are doing right now. It, it 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 makes me and whatever way Triumph have to do that to make it work is is fine by me. I have been at this game for long enough to have seen a number of so-called revivals, half-arsed revivals of great British biking names which have just crashed ign- ignominiously. I mean, look at what just happened with Norton. And, and great that it's been picked up within it by an Indian company because they'll probably do it right. They'll probably put in place the resources and the funding and the manufacturing capacity to actually... The thing with what Stuart Garner did with Norton recently was the bikes were great. The bikes looked incredible, great to ride, beautifully designed, well put together, but the company was under-resourced, it was understaffed, It just, they just couldn't deliver on what they so richly promised, and so I'm glad. Some people, are, you know, there's been some controversy that it's been picked up by an Indian company because, as you've already said, many great British names, you know, not least on four wheels, Jaguar Land Rover, now in Indian ownership, yeah. but look at what happened with Ducati. Ducati is a, a yeah. one of the great loves of, of my bike in life. I think they are the two wheel Ferrari. They're very special. Um, I've owned lots of Ducatis and I've ridden all kinds of Ducatis. Been to the factory a few times. I love Ducati. It was disaster until they were, take, until they were taken over by the, the Volkswagen Group and the money and the investment and the resources and the know-how came in. And finally, finally, their ambitions could be realised without having to cobble together a bike with Fiat car electrics and a Fiat car headlight and Fiat car wing mirrors. I mean, you know, it was like, really, guys, can, can we not? And it's no money. There wasn't enough money. There wasn't. Yeah. They had big dreams but, but small pockets, and so the purists will complain. They will moan. They will gripe. They'll say, "Oh, it's not a real Ducati. It's not a real Norton because it's you know it's not a real Jaguar." No, it, just because someone is able to to realise the dreams of the engineers and the designers doesn't mean that it's not the real thing. You know, like people would say, Oh, it's not a real British bike if it doesn't break down and leak oil. Yes it is. And great that it doesn't break down and leak oil. Yeah, that is agreed. You know you know, uh, see most of the royal fields are developed
1: near Solihill now. Right. So it is developed and made by the British. It can be assembled or manufactured anywhere in the world. Yes. Good it is India, good it is not China. At least India has got this cultural and, you know, language and so much of similarity with UK. So, it is designed in UK near Solihull. Hill, same with Norton. It will be designed near Birmingham, you know, same, maybe future, same with DSA. So the designers and the developers will be the British people, maybe it is made in India or assembled in India, How, what difference does it make? But absolutely, you're right. See Land Rover, Land Rover and Jaguar, how well they are doing. Royal Enfield, how well it is doing. So it is great, you know, that investments, money-wise, you know, people-wise is going in these companies. And again, the revival of these British bikes is happening. I just love it.
0: So when when Brits think of India, British bikers, uh, these days, a lot of them are inspired to travel there because they think they're going to do a bit of a Ewan and Charlie if you if you know what I mean, they think they're gonna yeah, they're yeah. gonna go to India and they're gonna they're gonna ride around the subcontinent and they're gonna have a great adventure. So for the people listening, you being the man in the know, what would you suggest people do if if I was coming to India and I wanted a motorcycle adventure? What do you, what would you, Sanjay, recommend that I do for my my Indian motorcycle adventure?
1: Uh, The best thing is, you know, when you come to India, you should come to India between October and March. That's the best best time because the weather is very nice, like the British summers. Hold on, I know what you're saying.
0: I know what you're saying. You're saying, Steve Berry, don't you come to India at the other time of year because your lily-white Lancastrian skin will burn in the fierce Indian (laughs) sun. You won't be able to handle it, boy. You can't come to India then because you won't... You're saying, I can ride then... But you, uh, you British boy, you wouldn't be able to handle the heat. That's what you're saying, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, know, Steve, even I cannot ride. It's 46
1: degrees centigrade. Good God. You know, it's burning. You know, even if you want to ride, even if you want to ride, let's say a Royal Sea, the engine heats up. So it's kind of, you will not enjoy, you cannot enjoy. Yeah. But if you come October onwards, it's like the British summer. Okay. And winter is happening, so as it is, you're kind of locking down your bikes out there. It's a good time to come to India. Come to India, pick up a Royal Enfield or or a Java, take uh, a route of all over India. There are companies in India, they can run by the British or run by the Europeans, who can organize a trip to the Rajasthan, the desert, Thar Desert, Himalayas, go to Goa, go to South India. It's a great place to be. Because you've
0: got... India is a bit like yeah. the States in that the, the United States is the whole world in one country. And India's the whole world in one country. Mountains, rainforests, deserts, all in one country. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So what, is absolutely correct. So I have a mountain
1: home, you know. I have a mountain home which of, is about of course. 250 <laughs> miles north of Delhi. Right now, it is the peak of summers. And out there, the temperature is 3 degrees centigrade.
0: So it's very cold. Yeah. And so, would you so, if you, you know, if you go for a, do you do you ride your bike up, up up there or is it is the temperature change too much? No, I do go on a
1: bike out there when I'm going there alone. But when I go with the family, I generally take a you know four by four. It is better to take a four x four, keeping in mind the road conditions, because it's next to a a, a game reserve. When I say game reserve, is the name of the game reserve is Jim Corbett, who was a Britisher. Of course, so it is the largest tiger game reserve in the world. Ooh. So I generally prefer to take a four x four to be careful from the tigers out there.
0: Yeah, when it comes to tigers, I think I'll stick with a Triumph variety. Do you, do you see what I did there, Sanjay? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So how do you how do you see the future for the Indian motor? So right, you've you've sold me, you've sold me on it. Is it is it not better to um, to actually buy a bike when you get to India, or other difficulties around buying a bike when you're not a citizen and stuff like—is it best to just hire one?
1: No, you can buy a bike in India, even if you're not a citizen. You just need a passport and a license. But easier will will be to rent a bike in India. You can easily rent a bike in big cities like uh, Bombay, Delhi, uh, Calcutta, even Chennai, Madras, or Chennai. There are these renting companies. You can rent a bike and you can go all over India. They have the support system in case of a bike breakdown. Some of the British bikes still do break down in India, including Royal Enfields. So you have a support systems. Uh, So I think you come here, rent a bike, that will be easier. And while going back, you can return to them. But yes, if you buy a bike, you can sell back the bike in India, or if you want to take it back to UK, that is also possible, there are companies which do package the bike and send it back to UK. I have known number of British friends who fell in love with the bike because it was a dream, it was their memory. So they wanted to take the bike back home, and they have taken the bike back to UK.
0: Wow. I would advise Brits against riding out to India because I recently watched a documentary, which is on YouTube, and it was a group of friends, Indian British Indian guys from Yorkshire, uh, they decided that they were going to take some Ford Transits back to the Ford Transit vans back to India, because there's a there's a variety of Ford Transit van which has a legendary engine known as the Banana, <laughs> and it's and it's an incredible that engine is legendary. It's an incredibly durable engine. It will clock up half a million miles. It will run for half a million miles. And so these guys, were they thought, OK, we'll go we'll go back uh, to India, to w- where our families are from, we'll take them these vans, which w- they'll then be able to use, and then we'll fly back. And it was a great idea and it was a great adventure until they got through Western Europe and then tried to get through the bit between Western Europe and India, which was just impossible. Because in the middle, it's not India that's the problem and it's not Western Europe that's the problem. It's the bit in the middle that's problematic, where it's like yes. they impound your yes, vehicles, absolutely. they tell you that your DVLA registration documents aren't legal. <laughs> you know, you give them all your stuff, the V5C, the documents. They go, no, no, this isn't. We need, we need more papers. And you're like, no, no, this is it. No, no, you, you must pay a fine, and it's more than the cost of the. It's more than the value of the vehicle. So I would say to people, don't try and get a plane fly to mumbai or wherever you're going whichever part of india and then either rent or hire a bike and do do what sanjay says and, and ride around a country which is the whole world in one country really because it's we, we like you know like i said we say that as brits and we think that we're very different you know like you were saying i've got i some people have noticed that i have a, a manchester pronounced northern Forward slash Manchester accent. We think we're also different in England. Like in Manchester, we think we're we're different to the people in Liverpool who are forty they're forty miles away from us and we think we're different. <laughs> you know, if you if you take Britain and put it into countries like Canada India, China, you know, it's like a tiny, tiny little country. I mean, a massively influential country, obviously, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the not so good, but a massively influential country we've invented. I think that even the Japanese acknowledge that of the 100 most important inventions of all time, 70, 70 of the 100 most important inventions of all time were made by Brits. That's incredible, isn't it? You know, if you think the television, the internet, the jet engine, you know, I can go on and on. The bicycle, as we know it, all Brits. What, what, what's what been invented by an Indian, Sanjay? Go on, you tell me. That's not a, I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, but you. what's the greatest Indian invention? So India invented the zero. You know, in
1: maths, they invented the oh, zero. Oh, wow, really? So, you know, all, yes, yes. So all the mathematics and everything, Indians were great. India invented spirituality. India invented yoga. Well, hold on. You couldn't hold on.
0: You couldn't have binary code without zeros. So if you couldn't have a zero, if there was because presumably people just used to count and they got one, and no one thought that there was no one ever thought there was zero. One, two, (laughs) ten. Somebody one day somebody went, hey, you know, there's nothing. What do you mean? There's nothing. (laughs) Well, we have to have a number for nothing. Oh yeah good idea let's call it zero what a great invention that is fantastic so what's the future what's the future for, for for Indian is it like is it like Korea I mean I saw the Korean um industry the Korean economy and the Korean um, Korean society transformed within what 25 years from kind of a an agriculturally based economy to one of the world's biggest shipbuilders, one of the world's biggest car and truck makers, a deliberate effort to modernise the country and to take people from basically sort of, you know, I mean, I was there in 95, and I'll never forget flying along a brand new highway, which is a perfect brand new highway, in a brand new Korean built executive car which wasn't as good as a mercedes or a bmw but it was getting there and i think they might even be there now so this is 25 years ago we're flying down this road and we go past a man coming in the opposite direction bent double underneath a load of firewood no shoes the straw hat and i just thought wow this country is modernizing so fast and, and, and would that would my experience of India be similar, or, or is India different? You tell me.
1: Oh, yes. I think India is going on the same line. So you have the world's best Ferraris and Mercedes and the world's best bikes out here. Yeah. But you have bullcups. So, you know, the Darth Vader age and the Jurassic Park age are running side by side yeah. in India
0: right now. Yeah. Like you know, Blade Runner. So I think it, it is. Yeah, Korea reminded me of the Korea reminded me of the the movie Blade Runner because I'm in my hotel in Seoul. Like I say, this is 25 years yeah. ago when Korean cars were just really starting to make an impact in in Western Europe, and now on the streets of England, it seems like every fourth or fifth car is a Kia. I mean, Kia are just the, the, their sales in the UK have gone crazy. But 25 years ago, I'm in my hotel. And again, there are people in the street pushing handcarts, but every couple of minutes, a helicopter goes past my hotel window because they allowed helicopters to fly around in the city in between the skyscrapers. So I thought, I'm literally in the movie Blade Runner. It, it was also raining at the same time, so that made it even more like Blade Runner. But India's a, a much larger country than Korea, a much larger population, I think, about to, in the next few years, overtake China as the most populous nation on Earth, but will we? Uh, how far is India away from that prosperous middle class, which kind of buys the the super bikes and the adventure bikes and the and the the custom bikes that are made by the likes of Ducati and Harley Davidson and Triumph?
1: So already, you know, about two hundred and fifty million people are the so called middle class, and already this class is coming up. Who is buying the Ducatis and the Harleys and the Big Triumph motorcycles in India? But I would still say near Korea, we will be there in another 15 years. Right. You know, the progress is happening very fast. Industrialization is happening very fast. What happened in the, you know, 19th century UK is happening in India now. Massive industrialization, but at the same time, a lot of pollution is happening. Air pollution is there. River pollution is there. So, you know, the negatives are also there. So I would still say it'll take another 15 years. We will be there. We are progressing. And advantage of UK is that we are an English speaking country. At least 50, 20, 20, 15 to 20 percent of people speak pretty good English, and you know culturally, very quite a similarities are there. So I think for
0: the motorcycle culture and motorcycle industry, it's a good time to be in India. Mm. Your career is taking you around the motorcycle industry and some very different marks, some very different brands of motorcycle with very different um, with de- very different buyers, very different customers. And I know you're still very active in the industry, so you're not going to say too much. But but which has been your favourite? Uh, the favourite part of your career, which has been closest to your heart in terms of the bikes that you were working with and the bikes that you were trying to promote and sell to the Indian public?
1: So what happened, I would say to, you know, Steve, the first one was in 2007. That was the first time I was working for Yamaha and I launched the first superbike in India that was the Yamaha R1.
0: The R1 was, was the 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 R1 was the first superbike in India. Wow, really? In two
1: thousand yeah that in 2007 and that changed the structure of the industry and after that the Triumphs, you know the, the harleys and the ducatis and the kawasaki Suzuki's, honda everyone came up to that so that moment in december 2007 changed everything and i was heading the launch i was head of the product strategy in the product planning so that was a very favorite moment and the next favorite moment was In UK, when I launched the GT Continental GT5C5, the first GT5C5 at the Ace Cafe, you know, going back to the mecca of biking in the world, Ace Cafe, and launching the bike there, it has got a lot of cherished memories for me. So these two, I would say, are great. So UK, I consider as my second home. You know, a lot of family and friends are there. So that was two great moments are very close to my heart.
0: Well, that's... Fantastic. I I can understand the idea that the R1 would. I'm trying to think what would have been the first superbike from Yamaha in the UK, and it's it's hard because it's the first bikes that came here. Obviously, were low you know were low capacity single cylinder, twin cylinder motorcycles. But to me, it'd probably be the RD400, the two stroke RD400. Was the people will disagree with that, but and they'll say that's not a super bike. But I think performance, well, I don't think performance is relative, performance is relative, isn't it? You know, it's like if it's the 1970s, if you're doing 125 miles an hour, that's a super bike. (laughs) Now, 125 miles an hour is like, yes, so what? (laughs) In a world where a lot of bikes are knocking around the 200 horsepower or 200 horsepower plus. What sort of percentage of the the market over there is for bikes like that? Uh, And what percentage is for the kind of the commuter bikes? I would imagine the single-cylinder commuter motorcycles are still way over 90%, 95% of the market, or or am I wrong?
1: You know, you're absolutely right. So I would say uh, see, 6% of the market is held by Royal Enfield. So Royal Enfield is in the range of about close to 50 horsepower for the 650 twins. So 6% of the market is held by the Royal Enfield. But the really big bikes or the super bikes, like the BMW, RR, or the R1, or the CBR, or the Jigsers are about 1% of the market. Wow. That's very less. Yeah, But majority, another 10 15%, 15% of the market is about 150 to 200 cc in the near about 20 to 25 horsepower. But 80% of the market is the commuter market You know, where the horsepower is in the range of 12 12 to 14 horsepower, the mileage or the value for money is very high. In a gallon of petrol, it goes to miles and miles and miles, something Mm. like that. But it's changing. You know, the more money is coming in, people are buying bigger bikes, people are buying bikes like Royal Enfield, Triumphs, uh, Java's. They are coming in. So I see the future, the size of the bigger bikes will increase.
0: Sanjay, is Jawa still that? I had a Jawa recently for reasons that I won't go into, but is it is it still the Czech company that made the, the Jawa motorcycle or Is it, is it now Indian-owned and, and made there?
1: Yes, so uh, there is a big Indian industrial house by the name of Mahindra. They make SUVs. So they now have the trademark rights for Jawas. And the Jawas are manufactured near Mumbai,
0: Bombay, Bombay. And is it that twin? Miles is it that twin cylinder two stroke three fifty that they make? Is do they still make that bike? No. Right. So no longer two strokes are allowed in India. Okay. So it is a right.
1: four stroke, but it but it looks like a nineteen sixties. It's like a retro motorcycle. Yeah. It looks very nice. Looks very nice.
0: <laughs> it looks very nice. <laughs> that's very diplomatic of you to say so (laughs) so do you you, we we again we were talking the other day um about the number of bikes that you own, and this is a this is a conversation because a friend a friend of mine's just he 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 bought a bike about six months ago and now i don't think he knows because he how many bikes he currently has because he comes from a car collecting uh, background and he's now discovered motorcycles as as collector items and of course, he's found out that one, you can buy four or five bikes sometimes for the for the cost of a collector car. Not if they're Vincent's or Bruff Superiors or whatever, but you know, you can buy a few bike a few bikes the same collector bikes the same cost as a collector car, and you can fit about six motorbikes into the same space as a collector car. So, um, but that that thing in the conversation came up. How many bikes is too many, and how many is too few? I've got a theory. I'm going to try it on you. I think if you have more than four, there is at least one that you'll never ride. Or you'll, you, and what will happen is, and I don't know if it's the same in India, you realise that the, old, the last time you rode that bike was the time that you took it for its annual safety test, and that's it. And I think if you get over, if you get more than four, that's when you start to own bikes that you never ride. What do you think?
1: Absolutely, you know. So, you know, I have four bikes. Ah, um, ah, very good. Right, go on. <laughs> what are they? So, one bike is just standing for more than a year. So, whenever I have to go and get the registration of the insurance done, that is the only time it is ridden. Yeah. There's another old Royal Enfield, 1990s. It is ridden whenever I have to go and get the service done. Maximum, I ride my Ducati Scrambler because it is much easier to ride. And sometimes for the track days, I have a BMW S 1000 RR. I do like that. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It's difficult to manage, difficult to maintain, insurance, uh, you know, again, going to the transport authority to get the registration renewed. A lot of issues are there. But yes, as a collective item, as an emotional issue, you can keep the bike and remember the good old days.
0: I was going to ask you the question just to conclude our conversation. Thank you so much for, for coming onto the show. It's, you know, we often talk about bikes. I mean, I love bikes. It, this show's mainly about cars, but as you know, my real love, if, if if I'm honest, is motorcycles, and always will be. India's the biggest bike market in the world, and so to hear what it's like and how different it is to the UK, but also for you to remind me of the connections between India's love affair with motorcycles and the UK. Because, you know, I think as you've as you've illustrated in our chat, the Indian love of motorcycles comes directly from British bikes. And I, I had no idea that, that Royal Enfield were manual... I knew they were making motorcycles. I had no idea they were making as many motorcycles as you've told me. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again... Don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.